Bokher Tov, good morning everybody. It is wonderful to see everybody back. Um, our topic today is social media, social justice and the establishment. And I want to take a moment to thank Paul and Yael who are sponsoring today's share as we just moved out of the show brachos of Ben and Essie uh, upon their marriage last Sunday and it was a tremendous simcha. And Be'ezra Hashem, we should have continued Simcha as we see them build their, their bias name by Yisrael. Well, based on the values of their parents, their grandparents, Be'ezra and Hashem, what a very, very special young couple. Mazal tov, mazal tov. Let's, let's, let, let's learn, let's, let, let, let's, let's put a little bit into this. So we're going to talk about a, a topic today which is very important, very relevant. But, you know, a lot of times people start this topic and they start talking about platitudes and general ideas. Let's start with a little bit of learning, a little bit of appreciation of learning and then come down to the applications of this model in our lives. Here's how it starts. So uh, we're going to look at you know, when, when you think about the space that Korach occupies and his, his attack on Moshe Rabbeinu or the establishment. It is interesting to, to, to wonder to yourself, like, what kind of guarantee must you be looking for in order to do such a thing? I mean, it comes with great risks. I mean, Moshe Rabbeinu is, you know, 10 plagues split the sea in Batan Torah, and you're, you're just Korach. You're just Korach. Now, yes, you're in the Mishpacha, but that's not going to get you so far if, uh, if you're on the wrong side of Moshe Rabbeinu. So what guarantees do you have? So the truth is that, that, that Korach did actually have a little bit of a guarantee. He had a crystal ball. And here's how it works. It's, it, it's embedded deep, deep, deep into Dira Yamim Aleph, Perek Vav, where most people are not reading. And the reason most people are not reading Dira Yamim Aleph, Perek Vav, is first of all because they haven't got that far enough. That's number one. And that's a pity because Dira Yamim is fantastic. Um, but another reason is that even those people who get far enough don't read the beginning of Dira Yamim Aleph because for the first more, more than 10 chapters, it's all about names. It's a, it's, it's a genealogy. And so for those who are very into um, mishpachology, then this is, this, is, this is where you're at. But for a lot of people, they just miss it. So here's, some, here's a gem you would miss. Take a look at these psukim where we learn a little bit about Korach and something that's going to be very important about him. So here we go. He says, These are the appointed ones of the name, Ibn Akasi, Haman, Hamasharer, Ben Yoel, Ben Shmuel. Okay, so we have this person whose name is Haman. Haman, you should recognize because he is one of the composers of Tehillim. There were 10 composers of Tehillim. David was the editor, but he had sub, uh, there, were, there were producers, there were writers um, who, who, were, who were part of it. And Haman was, appears a number of times in Tehillim. So Haman was a Levite who was the son of Yoel, the son of Shmuel, Ben Elkanah, Ben Yerocham, Ben Eliel, Ben Toich. Wait a second, we know one of those names there. Elkanah we know, right? Because Elkanah was at the beginning of Sefer, Shmuel, Aleph. And Elkanah had the distinct privilege of being the father of Shmuel, which is why it says in the previous Pasuk, Shmuel, right? So Shmuel is the grandfather of Haman, who is a Levi in the, in the base of Mikdash. And he is also um, in, this, in this line. Now let's carry on doing his genealogy. Ben Tzuf, um, Ben Elkanah, so you see a, grand, a grandparent naming over here. Ben Machas, Ben Amisai. Ben Elkanah, Ben Yoel, Ben Azariah, Ben Sephaniah, Ben Tachas, Ben Asir, Ben Aviasaf, Ben Korach, Ben Yitzhar, Ben Kaas, Ben Melevi, Ben Yisrael. There you go, all the way back. So we have Haman all the way back to Yisrael, Yisrael aka Yaakov Avinu. And now we have the genealogy downwards. So Yaakov Avinu's um, um, great, um, great grandson was Korach, 
And Korach's great-great-great-grandson was Shmuel, leading to, to Haman as well. So you say, okay, well, what's, well, how does this help us? So actually the Midrash Tanakhum as quoted by Rashi does help us by framing this as the reason why Korach actually was so bold. Because, um, as Rashi quotes at the beginning of, of Pasha's Korach, Page 2. What in the world was Korach doing? Why was he getting involved in this? High risks. His eye um, actually uh, misled him. Why? He saw this incredible line of lineage that was descendant from him. Shmuel, Sheshokul, Keneged, Moshe, Aaron. Um, uh, so he says that I'm going to be the, the, the patriarch of Shmuel. That's why he saw this, this future lineage, and it was true. And he said, if Shmuel, who is, and it goes, says, I'm going to be saved because of my future. Uh, and he goes, he says, My children will be part of the rotations of the Levium in the base of Migdash. And, and, and he says, and I know that, that it calls Elo Bnei Obonim Lehaman, and we know that Haman had many children who served in the base of Mikdash. Omar Efsha Kola Gedula Azos Asidul Amodim Meni Vaani Edom. It comes, it becomes what's called the Macbeth syndrome, right? Where I know what the future holds. I know my children are all going to be in the base of Mikdash, and I'm going to now keep quiet upon this opportunity that Duncan is sleeping, King Duncan is sleeping in my palace tonight. Right? <laughs> so I know I have all these, these children coming out, out, out of me. And now Moshe Rabbeinu is, is nominating his brother for the Kahuna Gedol and I'm going to keep quiet. So he's sort of, right, this, this is the danger of self-fulfilling prophecies. So he says, if Moshe Rabbeinu says, one person's going to survive and, one, and, and the rest are going to die, he says, I'm pretty sure that that one person's going to be me. Number one, because of this of my, of my future, and in fact, he says not only is Shmuel just an anybody. We know, as we say every Friday night in Tehillim, as we quote in the Kabbalah Shabbos, which is source two, actually is one page back. Moshe v'Aaron v'Kohanov v'Shmuel v'Koresh boy. and he, he uh, the, this pasuk in Tehillim almost equates Shmuel and Moshe and Aaron. So with Korach, knowing that he's going to have Bnei Bonim, who are going to be Haman and who are going to be serving the best of English. And he knows he's going to produce a Shmuel, and Shmuel is shakul, is weighted in spiritually, and not in Nevoah, because lo kam but in some degree of leadership, Shmuel is weighted like Moshe and Aaron, and now he is pitting himself against Moshe and Aaron. He says, well, if my future is equal to the two of you, then I have the worth to make this argument. That's, 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 his, that's his argument. So he's, he's making, he's, he's essentially putting all his eggs into this basket because he knows the future will, will hold true. What was his mistake? Well, I mean, this is all true. So what was his mistake? <coughs> yeah, his, his kids came through. He didn't, right? So it's a, it's a dangerous game when you start playing the future. He had children already. It wasn't like he was, about, he was going to have children after this. It was the children he already had. And they, although they started with him, they did Shuvan, in fact, became authors of Tehillim too. <laughs> which happens many times as well. So they joined Haman as well, their, their great-grandchildren, um, later on. In, in, in submitting to Hillim as well. So that, that, that's what the Rashi says. This is all famous. This is all no, no chidushim. We just, went, we just went through the actual psukim that I talked about this genealogy. Now I'd like to, 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 to go into a little bit of a more uncharted territory. 
So I don't think that this is just happens to be happenstance, that it, it turns out that Shmuel is the person, he is, happens to be the patriarch of. I think there's much, much more which is actually similar. In fact, if we go back to, the, to, to Shmuel's life and Korach's life, Shmuel being the great-great-great-grandfather and Shmuel the great-great-grandson, there's a lot of parallels which, which exist, which I think are worth exploring. So as an example, you'll notice that when Moshe Rabbeinu wants to, to get rid of the challenger to his to his, to to his power and establishment, he doesn't just say, you know, we'll have a, a you know a public debate. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't the way he figured he figured it out. Moshe Rabbeinu says in Sos four, You want to know I'm right? He says I'm going to give you I'm going to tell you something that happens. If Korach dies dies in an assisted living with his family around his bedside. Then you know that I'm 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 false, right? Then I, then I'm then I, then I, that's not 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 me. I want you to know if Hashem is going to create a new creation, something which never existed beforehand, and they die and the, and the earth opens up its mouth, then that's it. That's then you know that I'm this is this is not this is not a game. I was I was it wasn't me who appointed me. It was God who appointed me, and He opened up the earth in the same way. That's a, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu says. By the way, quick question. <laughs> Did Hashem tell him to do this? No, it doesn't sound like it. Hashem did not command him not to say this. We know in Pirkei that maybe the, the, the PRX was created at, um, during Ben Hashemoshes, but that doesn't mean that Hashem commanded him. That could have been that Hashem knew that's omniscience rather than, than, uh, um, than, than a gazera that it would be. But nonetheless, um, he didn't, he, he, he was, Moshe Rabbeinu is going out on a limb over here to say that I'm going to ask for a miracle in getting rid of these people. That's so that's a pretty strong thing. And did Hashem listen? The answer is yes. Hashem, Hashem came through for Moshe Rabbeinu. Interestingly enough, later on, Shmuel's leadership is challenged as well. And he is asked to be re uh, replaced by, uh, uh, by, uh, by a king. And at the end of, of establishing the king, he says the following um, in source 5. He says, I want to show you something, says Shmuel, to the people. This is now Korah's uh, progeny. He says, It is the it is the harvest of wheat today. What season is the harvest of wheat in Israel? When about is that? Around Shavuot time, right? So just a few weeks ago. And it, just a quick question in Israel. Does it rain after Shavuos? Never. Never rains after Shavuos. Never, not until, not until, until we get to Sukkot. It's dry all the way through. He says, I want to show you that you are incorrect by asking for a king. It's going to have a rainstorm today. And suddenly an incredible thunderstorm opens up and people are terrified because they've never seen a, a, a thunderstorm in the month of Sivan, June, June time. Never been and people are, are, are shocked. Again, Shmuel summoning an unnatural event in, in, in lieu of his leadership as well, similar to Moshe Rabbeinu. But it gets more than that. If you think about it, what, what was the, the claim that Korach had against Moshe? The claim that, 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 that Korach had was you, your side of the family, has claimed too much, right? There's, the, there's a, a, a disproportionate amount of power um, in your side of the family. Greg Kahas, he came from the other side, the Yitzhara side, and he said, well, your side of the family took Kuna Gadola and governance. That's, that's too much, right? King and, and Kohen Gadol. Um, we, we need to remove the leaders who are not correct. 
Well, it is interesting because in Shmuel's own lifetime, he, it happens to be that there is an individual who holds both those stations in society. And his name is Eli HaKohen. Eli is a Shofet, as, uh, as we understand. Um, he was the Shofet at the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, the coming off of Sefer Shoftim. So, and he happens to also be the Kohen Agadol. He happens to be the high priest as well. And again, whenever you have a, uh, perhaps a coalescence or, uh, or convergence of different branches of government, we, learnt, we talked about this a little bit before, in one person, there's always problems. So we know that in fact, in Sefer Shmuel Aleph Perik Beis, that, that uh, as he grew older, unfortunately, he may have been a tzaddik, but it did not work for his sons. Take a look at source 6. There was something going on. We don't know if this is, if this is literal or not literal. There's something going on with their power differential on the women who are coming to the, the Mishkan. Why are you doing this, says Eli, to his, to his sons? Please, my sons, don't. And he says, uh, how can you do this? And in the meantime, uh, and, uh, and he says, it's, it, this is not a good thing. In Pastor he says, So while Eli's sons are really not living up to their power, then Shmuel, who has no power, is a very young, very wonderful, upstanding and, and, and respected young man. Now what happens is, is because of this and because Ali does not take a strong enough stand against his, uh, uh, um, his sons and what they represent, he, a, 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 an unknown prophet comes to him and tells him that, that, that you're going to be replaced as a coin. So we have this unknown prophet who tells this to us in, over the course of the next page. But what is interesting is, is what happens next. What happens is that Shmuel, if you remember, the, uh, he is living in the area of, he is living in Shiloh with Ali. Why is he living in, in Shiloh with, uh, with Ali? Ali is not his father. Elkanah is his father. Why is he living with Ali? Because that was the promise. Hannah says, if you give me children, I'll bring my first child to you, Hashem. So she, uh, when, when he's weaned, she dedicates him, as we remember in the Torah of, Rosh Hashanah, she dedicates her son Shmuel to the Mishkan, and he, although he is a Levi, now, uh, he serves um, he serves amongst, right, remember, Levi because he's coming from Korach, okay, so no, not a coin, that was the whole dispute, so he is a Levi, he serves, and he, and he is an attendant to Ali, and what happens is, is as he grows up, he, he is a very, very respected young man, as, as the Tanakh emphasizes numerous times in Perik Beis and Gimel of Sefer Shmuel Aleph, and he is asleep one night, and he hears a voice, and the voice calls to him, not realizing that this is his first experience of prophecy, he goes over to Ali and he says, did you call me? Ali says, I didn't call you. So he goes back to sleep, he hears the voice again, he goes over to Ali again, and, and after the third time, Ali re uh, realizes that Shmuel is hearing something. And, yeah. and, so, he says to, and so he says, go back and, and, and maybe it's uh, Hashem, he listens to, to Hashem, and this is what Hashem says to Shmuel in Source 8. I'm going to do something in Israel. If anybody hears it, their ears are going to ring. And that refers to, whenever you hear that, the idea of ears ringing, it refers to the destruction of a holy place. And that's about the destruction of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is going to be destroyed. Right? This is the, in between the Mishkan and the base of Migdash. I'm going to, on the Chalei, I'm going to on that day, 
bring about the destruction to the house of Eli on the day of the destruction of the Mishkan. Because he did not reign in his sons, who are representing the Kuna Gedola and leadership, I'm going to reign upon them what they, what, they des- what they deserved as representatives. I'm never going to allow them to get retonement. It's very, very serious, uh, the, sin- the sins of leadership. And, um, and that's what happens. And so, so Shmuel becomes the messenger. Shmuel becomes the messenger to power that is going to topple power ultimately. So he turns to, he's the one who gives over the message that you know how this, you're going to, this is true. On the day the Mishkan is destroyed, you will be uh, killed. And that's what happens. Because what happens is that Chofni and Pinchas go out to battle against the Philistines. Chofni and Pinchas are killed. Um, it's a terrible, terrible story. Right? Pinchas' wife is, is, is late-term pregnancy. She then, she goes into labor. She dies in childbirth, has a child they called Ikovod. Uh, um, and uh, the, the lack of honor because of the destruction of the Mishkan. Eli hears about this. He's in his 90s. He falls off his chair and breaks his neck and dies on that day. Everybody, children, father, the whole thing, terrible. The wife, everybody dies on the day of the Mishkan. And who is the messenger of this? Who brings this message? Is Shmuel, which is fascinating because here is, in a certain sense, the prototype of Korach expressing itself once again. Here you have, in this case, a real abuse of power where you have the Kohen and the Shofet who are not living up to their calling and the person who unseats them or is the messenger of unseating becomes this Korach um, progeny who, uh, in, in the same way. Why? Because of misuse of power. It's what Korach was attempting to do, at least in his mind, theoretically. He was incorrect. But when he looks into the future, I wonder if he looked into this particular, um, this particular message as well. And it gets more because who becomes the leader instead of Eli, not the coin, because he's not a coin, but who becomes the leader of the Shofet is Shmuel himself. So Shmuel takes that, the Levi takes the power from the Kohen in the situation, which was Korach the Levi speaking to Moshe and Aaron, really speaking to Aaron to take his Kunigadot. Fascinating, right? But let's go a little further. If we fast forward later on, when Shmuel now has a king around him, and this king, his name is Shaul HaMelech, what happens is that Shaul does not always manage to listen to the straight and the narrow. He, he has his own ideas about things, and understandably. So one situation is where there is a, a, a situation where the, the Plishtim are attacking because his son, Yonatan, kills a, a, one of the representatives of the Philistines. The Philistines are the military power. They start attacking. There's no weapons. And Shmuel told him, in seven days' time, I'm going to come here and I'm going to bring a sacrifice. And Shaul Amalek does not is waiting and waiting and Shmuel's not coming and the more Shmuel doesn't come the more people are leaving and and he is very worried and so finally what happens is Shaul breaks under the pressure and he brings the sacrifice to start the battle and at, at that moment Shmuel, Shmuel, Shmuel Anavi appears and so in source 9 seven days have come the Shmuel's not arriving the people are dispersing he brings the sacrifice because he needs to give the people hope that they're going to actually do something. So he goes out to greet Shmuel. Wonderful to see you. What did you do, says Shaul? I see the people are leaving. I'm going to be attacked. The people are leaving. 
I'm going to not have 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 um, given a sacrifice to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, so I brought it. Niskalta, you made a mistake. Loi shomarta is mitzvah Hashem elokecha shetzivach kiato echir Hashem es mamlochtocha el Yisrael adolam. Hashem has now taken away your kingship from from forever. This, by the way, is a precursor to the. Agag situation. The Agag situation was when he became deposed as a king in his lifetime. This was this was did not depose him of his kingship in his lifetime, but rather his progeny. You no longer will be a the the, the um a, a bequeathing the kingship to your children because of this was what Shmuel was was essentially saying to him. Here we have another situation where you have a leader who's not living up to snuff, who's not living up to what they they're, they're calling, and who is the person, who is the person to depose that leader not living up to their to their calling is Shmuel. The, 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 the Korach progeny. Fascinating. It might be that Korach looks into the future and says, look, I have a person who is so powerful that stands up to kings and coin goddles and says to them, this is not working and is, is successful at deposing them. He says, well, then if it's, going to be a, if it's going to be a binary option, zero or one, and only one person's coming out, I'm probably that person because I'm doing the same thing. Mistakenly in, in his application to, 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 to his own to his own lifestyle, but 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 now but now it gets it gets more it gets more uh, more, more 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 difficult, and uh, in fact what happens is is and this is this is where the, the full circle comes in and it's important to appreciate what happens. So um, yeah, I'm just want to see which, which is the best way to do this. Let's 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 start actually on page eight, okay, source thirteen. Um, that is not the translation of the first pasuk, um, but uh, it, it, in source thirteen, it's um, we know the beginning of our parsha is vayikach korach ben Yisrael ben Kaz ben Levi v'dalson v'aviron ben Eliavis v'on ben Peres ben Eruven. So this whole conglomeration of dis, uh, of uh, of uh, 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 upset people get together vayakumul ifnei Moshe v'anoshim ibnei Yisrael chamishim mosaim nesiyeh edar kriyeh moedah and sheishem. They get up in front of Moshe vayikalu al Moshe v'laron vayamru alehem rav lochem. You got too much. Everybody's holy. And they now uh, approach Moshe and they say, how could you take all the leadership? How could it be the Aaron? You nominate your brother and sister, the two of you. And our side of the family doesn't have anything. And why are Kwan more better than Levia and, and that whole business? That's that, that we know. But now the same thing happens in Shmuel's life. Shmuel now actually suffers the same thing. Because as Shmuel grows older, in source 14, Perikhes, in, in Sefer Shmuel Aleph, His children become leaders. And his children didn't live up to it. And again, we discussed this. This is not taken literally according to most of the Mephorshim. It means that Shmuel used to move from city to city and, and offer judgment and leadership in every city. And his children said this, and you know, it's a two-way street. If you want to get, if you want judgment, then come to us. If you have a problem, come to us. So the, the, the Botsa, the, the Shocha that it's referring to is, is convenience. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't want to have to go everywhere. And if you want to come to us, you come to us. That was, that was the, what was going on. But Beer Zemei, they they weren't the same. They weren't made of the same the same cloth that, that, that Shmuel was. That's what the people are saying. That's very uh, not a very delicate way of saying it. Um, you know, you're old. Your children aren't going in your in your way. We want somebody else instead of you. Shmuel is very upset about this. He's very insulted by this whole, this whole thing. So the, this, this is what happens, which is fascinating because ultimately, in a certain sense, although Korach looks into the future and sees that Shmuel 
is so powerful and Shmuel is, you know, carries out what, what he thinks he's doing in his lifetime in the future, in the end of the day, um, Shmuel faces the same music that Moshe Rabbeinu faces, which is all this dramatic irony in, 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 in history, where, where now the, the shoe is on the other foot, where, where now suddenly the tables are turned, and now, now, now the, the, the Korach individual, right, the, the, the better Korach individual, which is Shmuel, is now facing the same music that Moshe Rabbeinu was facing. And in fact, in case you're wondering if this is, if this is, the, if this is a, a correct parallel, the reason why we bring the Haftorah of Parshas Korach is in fact um, from Shmuel Aleph about Shmuel and listen to the, the words. So let's, let's turn back a page to page 7, source 10 and 11. Moshe Rabbeinu says when he's attacked by everybody, he, he turns to me, so, he is he's so hurt by this. He calls Dustin and Aviram, they don't come, and then he says, uh, and they said, you didn't bring us to the, to the land of milk and honey. In the of the last pasuk over here, in, um, in, in this quote, and it turns to Hashem and it says, don't listen to any of their prayers or any of their meal offerings. I didn't even take one donkey of this. I didn't take any favors. I didn't, my leadership, I never got any benefits, kickbacks, you know, submarine deals, nothing. So in the end of the day, like what's, why, why are they doing this to me? That's what Moshe Rabbeinu says. Now you think that's, what Moshe, that's the only person who said that in history? Incorrect. Listen to Shmuel. When Shmuel now is asked to be deposed, the say, right, the people are coming to him and saying, very nice, we appreciate you and everything, and you know, we'll give you a certificate, but we want a, we want a new leader. So Shmuel, Shmuel gets very upset. He finds a new king, appoints a new king. The king is proven, and then he gets up, and then he gives him a speech. And this is a very serious speech. And at the beginning of the speech, he says in Source 11, a very strong statement. You wanted a king, I gave you a king. I, I replaced myself. Okay, now, and now I'm old. My children are with you. And, uh, and I led you from my youth till now. Let's answer me and in front of you is Mashiach. That refers to Shaul. Now, folks, this is a public statement which I don't think any leader I have ever heard make, ever. Listen to what he says to the people. In the presence of everybody and the king. Have I ever used or misused my power for you? Have I ever taken anything that was untoward in my entire career? He's not, this is a public statement he's making. That's very intense. In front of Hashem and them. I mean, there's, there's, there's got to be somebody, right? There's got to be somebody in that crowd who thinks that Shmuel misappropriated his property. Right? Vayomru. And they said, And it's, it's remarkable. What leadership? A hundred percent. No, but everybody says in, in unison, Nope, nothing. Nothing, Shmuel. It's amazing. And he says, I'm calling God into, into, into witness, the witness stand, to witness what you just said, that, 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 that you, just, you just said, I never abused my power for you. So again, what's so fascinating is, now that the shoe's on the other foot, you feel the indignance of Shmuel, who's now the Korach on the other side of the spectrum. Now Korach is the leader. This is Shmuel who's the leader being accused or being deposed of and he has to defend himself. And now he feels the pain of Moshe Rabbeinu 
Did I do anything to you? He says the same the same language. He's quoting Moshe Rabbeinu. In fact, the Gemara says in Nadarim that Shmuel was even more vociferous, stronger than this. Take a look at the top of page eight. The Gemara says in Nadarim, Lamed Ches, Shmuel's claim was even stronger than Moshe. I didn't take a, 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 don, a donkey of you, you a dafilu basachar. Meaning to say, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I never, I, 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 I never even rented from you a donkey. Shmuel, it wasn't even without any, without any, uh, um, any money, without any, even with consent, he didn't take it. So meaning to say, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I didn't forcibly, you know, we'd uh, take any advantages of my leadership. And Shmuel says, without any, with a consent, I had, I had nothing involved. So Shmuel's even more vociferous of a response. And I, and I just, you, you sense this incredible dramatic irony in history. Here is Korach who looks to the future and says, I've got a Shmuel and that's the reason why I'm claiming against Moshe Rabbeinu. Well, that person you're looking to in the future is going to be standing in the same dock in just a few years' time. Who's going to be defending himself in the same way because the people said the same thing to him. That's, uh, that's sort of like, you know, the, 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 the great machinations, the wheels of history turning now as, as, as Shmuel, uh, Shmuel's on the other side. And now... Uh, now it's the ultimate tshuva. It's the ultimate tshuva. It's, uh, it's also the ultimate, uh, it's also the, uh, the ultimate din as well. But now, 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 now I want to dig this a little deeper. Because <laughs> now, now we have the tools to be able to, 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 to unpack this. Which is that there's a lot of parallels here, right? So looking to the future, this whole, this whole, this whole idea is opening up. It's, it's really quite... Quite astonishing. Now we, when we read the Torah of Parshas Korach, it's going to be a little bit different to have this this perspective. But, but here there, there actually is a little bit of a difference in the claim against Moshe and the claim against Shmuel. And that's that's where the critical difference lies. You see, when it came to Moshe Rabbeinu, it was actually decentralization of leadership. When it came to Shmuel, it was change of leadership. Do you notice that? It is a little different. Although both of them are asking to be replaced to a certain degree, or power, uh, the powers are asking to be replaced, when it comes to Korach's claim, it's the claim of decentralized leadership. You have too much power in one bottleneck. That's what's really being said over here. We're all holy. We're all at Sinai. We can all, we can all have a part of this, right? Um, those 250 people, they also are shareholders. When, when it comes to Shmuel, that's not the claim at all. Which is why, in Shmuel's case, they ask not to make everybody a leader. They say, but we want a different form of leadership. We want a different type of government. They keep the establishment. They understand that there's still a role in having an administration. Just the type of administration is being changed, which is why, when it comes to Korach, Korach's model of rebellion fails. And B'nai Israel's form of rebellion or overhaul actually succeeds even though it's deemed as a deemed as a negative thing at the beginning when it's asked as well which leads to a very to, to, to I think really an important part of this claim of Kikola Eda Kulam Kadoshim the notion that everybody's holy everybody has a voice is an important claim but within context and that's that, that's what I'd like to get to there's a there's a book actually Dr. Abramson suggested this to me many many years ago and I read it called Cognitive Surplus by Clay Shirky very interesting is a um, a, a professor here in one of, the, I believe, in Columbia, um, one of the New York universities. Very interesting individual, um, and he wrote at the beginning of this is an old book already, so it's, uh, it's this is already um, t over a decade old, where he talks about the the value of the collaboration the internet has has created for us in society. So to give an example, just a, in his introdu introduction, so a paragraph here on page nine. This book is about the novel resource 
That has appeared in Source 15. Um, that has appeared as the world's cumulative free time is addressed in aggregate. The two most important transitions allowing us to access this resource have already happened. The buildup of well over a trillion hours of free time each year on the part of the world's educated population. Right? So people have more time on their hands than they ever had beforehand. And the invention and spread of public media that enabled an ordinary citizens previously locked out to pull that free time in pursuit of activities they like or care about. These two fa common facts are common to every story in this book. So, so now, um, just to, 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 to let's talk about some of the examples of the, some of the things he talks about, some of the examples of the advances that he talks about in terms of lots of free time and the ability of everybody to be able to have a voice. Um, so one example is, and just this is a simple example for a moment, is um, of, um, of decentralization of, uh, of, uh, of the establishment is Waze. Waze is a great example of a very positive advance <coughs> where no longer am I relying on a satellite or a helicopter to look down and notice the pa traffic patterns and therefore give me, the consumer, the, um, the, the information. But rather I, as a consumer, am also providing the information by having an app open in my car, which is now going into a larger algorithm, which together will inform um, everybody else as well about the traffic patterns in real time, because we're all contributing to the, to the larger algorithm of, what, of how traffic is working. It has reformed the way that people drive today. That's without actually actively being involved. But then, on, on, other, on other sides, like let's think about today, um, um, publishing today as an example. So it used to be that since the times of Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press, it was an incredible revolution, right? So now you had the ability of people being able to proliferate the word, the Reformation being a product of the printing press, like Luther being able to, to, to print out his ideas and, and spread them at a, a rapid rate, uncontrollable uh, by, by, the, by the church. An incredible, an incredible revolution. But as the printing press developed, it became also a, a, a bottleneck as well because every printer um, had to make a decision as to what they were going to print. And what was the decision usually based on? What it all comes down to? Money, which means to say that the printer will say, is, is your book going to get me money? Um, is, it is it going to sell enough? So therefore, who controls the ideas in society? Is the, is the person who owns the printing press, because they're going to say, is this idea worthy of printing? And is this, if it's going to pay me back enough, then I'll print it. If not, who cares? And therefore, there's a, there, there was a certain level of you could say on the positive side, well, a certain level of, the, you know, we'll call excellence demanded because of the, having to, to make the bar of printing. Or you could say, on the other hand, is that there's a limitation of the ability to be able to print if you don't make the cut or the like of that printer. What happened in the revolution of the internet is the decentralization of printing. I can for free get a Wix or Weebly a website, set it up without even getting a starter pack, and press a red button that says publish, and now billions of people can read my uneducated opinion anywhere, anytime, right? I no longer have to go through somebody else who is going to tell me it's all right or not all right to publish. I've decentralized, ki kol ha'eda, kulam kadashim. We all have a voice and the right to be able to do that. 
And that, in a certain sense, he views as a very positive thing, allowing many more people to be able to publish, many more ideas to meet the public eye than ever beforehand because of the aggregation of, of, of publishing. Let's go, let's go a little further. If you think about, um, the, um, there, was a, there, there was a website which, which was established in Kenya in 2008 called Ushahidi. Ushahidi means witness. Um, and it, what it was, was it was an NGO, non-governmental organization, which was there to track violence in the country, non-fatal violence, when there were violent situations that happened because of a lack of policing, because of tribal, tribal fighting. And although the government was keeping track of these things, what ended up happening was this website, then the, 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 the people who are working behind this, enabled people to report, not just by going onto the website, but even sending text or phone calls that something's happening. And it became such a powerful resource that the Kennedy School of Government in Harvard started taking note of this and started tracking violence in, in Kenya. And violence started tapering off in Kenya because there was oversight of other countries of what was happening in Kenya in more real time than what was happening by the Kenyan government reporting itself. How was that possible? Not because you waited for the central establishment to report or perhaps ignore the violence that was happening on the street, but because regular citizens were enabled to be able to report, and this is the, this is the power of social media. Think about, in the early 2010s, the Arab Spring, and you think about the, the, the million people in the central square in Cairo as, they, as the people were fighting against the, uh, uh, against um, uh, President um, Mubarak. Mubarak, thank you, Khofni Mubarak at the time, and his immediate deposal, uh, deposal uh, based on uh, conversation um, with President Barack Obama, who at the time says now, that was the word he used, which we're, uh, in which he, which he stepped down. But a million, how did a million people get there? The Arab Spring was a function of social media. It was because millions of people could get the information to each other without a government controlling that information for people to get together. And so if you look throughout, and it's worthwhile reading a lot about the collaboration that he talks about that's available through media, it's always a function of the tools today of Kikola Eda Kulam Kadoshim, which is the, the claim of Korach ultimately, which is that we don't need to have a centralized government or centralized force telling us or not telling us, ignoring, not ignoring. We all have a voice. Let's use that voice together and, and to its success. That was Korah's claim. But here's the flip side. And it comes down to what happens in yesterday's parasha, in parasha's shlach. It says Rav Hirsch, and it's such a powerful thing. Most people skip this Rav Hirsch. When I read it the first time, the implications were so powerful, so powerful when I, when I, when I, when I read this, this Rav Hirsch. This is not where he talks about the main sin, but here's his observation. He says, you know what the biggest problem with the, with the, the Miraglim was? He says, they had, a they had important, sensitive military information. And you know where the context is to share sensitive military information? Is in a closed-door meeting in a bunker in Tel Aviv with the chief of staff and the generals of the army. That's where you share information of that note. But where did they share that information? In the public sphere. They called a press conference. Right? He says, that was the sin. Think about this for a second. There's, there's an importance today between information and the masses. And the question is, who is mediating that information? Who's moderating that information? And today there's no one who's moderating that information. Because, or perhaps larger, larger, larger search engines that are, that are moderating that information at best, which is not moderation. 
It just depends which which uh, which side of the which side of the of the political spectrum it, it it is it is it is moving towards. But if you think about that for for a moment, that means to say you're giving raw information to the unwashed masses, and guess what's going to happen when that happens? They're all going to start crying. Of course, they're going to start crying because they have no idea what that information means. They don't know what it means to understand military information because they're not schooled in it, because they're not chiefs of staff, because they've never seen a battlefield, because they've never been, had any military training, because they're not qualified to understand that information. And so that's what's going to happen when you have the Miraglim. Obvious, says Rav Hirsch. Isn't this what's happening today? Today, you have the police department can be dealing with a, a situation where, there was a, a, where, the, where a person died, as an example, and now every single American citizen is going through the body cam report and saying, well, was it right or not right? There's a police department which has the ability of being able to do its own research and be able to make its own judgments and court-martial. That's how due process works. There's a danger and there's an advantage. On the one hand, you could say, well, police brutality needs to end. And if there wasn't the fact that the, the public were looking at the body cam reports which are being submitted to the public, then nothing would be done. You're right. There is, an, there is a tremendous advantage. On the other hand, the riots which happen because the public don't understand what they're watching because they don't have the context in, of what they're watching is also a terrible calamity. The danger of the decentralization or the, or the lack of mediation of information to the unwashed masses is, is something which affects us. Going back to the Arab Spring for a second. Was the Arab Spring a great thing? Well, guess what happened when Khofni bin Mubarak left? Guess who filled his spot? The Muslim Brotherhood. If it wasn't for the fact that Sisi who was, who was one of the leaders of the army, took over with strong leadership, we would have real big problems in the Middle East today. Thank you, Arab Spring. Right? So, uh, although at the beginning, President uh, Obama championed this idea of the free, it wasn't freedom they were looking for, believe me. <laughs> it was not freedom. There was, it was, they needed another dictator, but in the end of the day, that was not necessarily a good thing for Egypt at that immediate moment in time. If you want to put things back, to, back into perspective. Um, Rabbi Sachs has a book called Morality, which I highly recommend to everybody. And he has a chapter which is called The Return of Public Shaming. And it's just uh, an example that he, he cites um, in a book called you've, Be, uh, you, you've Been Publicly Shamed. It's a story about a lady called Justine Seiko, the director of corporate communications on the internet from uh, firm AC. On December 10, 20th, 2013, she was on a flight from New York to Cape Town. During a layover in Heathrow, she sent out a series of tweets intending to be, intended to be humorous. One of them read, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Now, it's obviously a, a stupid uh, message to send out, right? But she, was, she, meant it with, uh, she meant it as sarcastic or humorous, whatever else it meant. She waited for half an hour for replies, none came. The flight itself took 11 hours during most of the time she was asleep. When she arrived, she discovered that during the time she had become the number, number one trending um, topic on Twitter, uh, Twitter she, lost her, she had lost her job. She had been denou denounced by media bloggers, celebrities throughout the world. During the 11 days between then and the end of December, she was Googled 1.2.2 million times. And you say, well, maybe that's right. Maybe people should be more careful about what they say. But what was lacking in this again was due process. She had never a chance to even defend herself. She had never a chance to, to, to state her case. Because in the meantime, the public, the, the mob of social media had destroyed her. And you can't recover from those kind of things. And that happens again and again and again today. The public shaming, which is as a function of perhaps the Kol Aeda Kulam Kadoshim model, which is everybody's got a voice. Well, when you let everybody have a voice and they're unschooled and they're not worthy of having an opinion about certain matters, 
then we have what we have today, which is uh, the return of, of public shaming as well. This comes back to, to what the spies were doing. And I think that perhaps the Torah sets up the Miraglim in apropos to Korach because it's precisely the same issue, which is when Korach, you, when you understand that everybody deserves a voice, you have to be careful. You need centralized leadership. And perhaps, although the shoe, the, foot, the, the shoe is on the other foot when it comes to Shmuel, notice that although they are replacing Shmuel as a form of government, they are not replacing him with the masses. And that's why it succeeds, ultimately, as opposed to Korach as well. Because in the end of the day, there is a need for a government. There is a need for centralization. And what I think the Torah, the Torah is saying, what the Tanakh is saying in general, is there's a spectrum over here of the space of having the um, accountability of leadership, to the degree that Shmuel will be willing to depose of, be the harboring of the news, of deposing of the Ailes of the world who don't live up to the leadership, or the Shauls of the world who don't listen to the instructions. That is an expression of Korach's You need to be accountable to the public. You do. But you also need to have a due process to be able to get there. Because without due process, without warning, without the ability to be able to defend oneself, then all anarchy breaks loose as well. And perhaps looking back to Tanakh, you look at the, what seems to be just a story about people in those days, has a lot of relevance to today as well. A lot of relevance of trying to find that balance between mediating information and also giving voice to those who are oppressed at the same time. Giving voices to those who need voices in today's society while also trying to be able to mediate between what is true and what is not true in a post-truth world. They, folks, I think there's a lot, a lot to be learned, Be'ezra Hashem. I hope that we can, there's a lot to be learned from this, Be'ezra Hashem. Thank you so much, everybody.